Well, it's good to be back at Grace Fellowship. As Pastor said, last time I was here it was uh, July, and uh, it's hard to remember July for some of us, but it was a long time ago, and some crazy things have happened since then as um, uh, we're just in unusual days. But it's really good to see some of you that I got to meet back in July. And, of course, always good to see many of you who are students at RBC. There are more students from RBC going to church at Grace Fellowship than any other church in Central Florida. And so I pray for you a lot, brother. (laughs) Not because they're hard to shepherd, but because I want to make sure that they're shepherded well. And I appreciate your faithful shepherding of this church, appreciate your leadership here, and am very grateful for your friendship. So thank you for the invitation to be in this pulpit. I don't take that privilege lightly and want to draw our attention to the Word of God today. So if you have your Bibles, if you would take them and open them up to Mark chapter 9, or turn them on, click, swipe, flip, whatever your Bible requires you to do to get to Mark chapter 9, do that. I am old school. My kids tell me that I'm old school, although I prefer the term classic, but they say I'm old school, and I like the heft of a Bible in my hand. I do use an electronic Bible sometimes, but always enjoy um, holding God's Word in my hand. And so um, I'm so old school that uh, the other day I was looking for a newspaper, and I asked my son, have you seen my newspaper? And he said, Dad, nobody uses newspapers anymore. That's old school. We all use tablets now. And he handed me an iPad. And that fly didn't have a chance, just... (laughs) So... Anyway, I'm, I'm old school and proud of it, okay? So uh, you're getting Wooten Classic this morning. Uh, so Mark chapter 9, here's why we're in Mark chapter 9 today. It's because normally when I go and preach at a church, the pastor says, hey, we've been studying this, but we're just going to pause that. You come in, you preach whatever you want. But your pastor has said, we've been preaching through this series, and the next passage is this, and I want you to take that. And that's very unusual for a pastor to let a guest preacher come in and step in to a series that he's already in because most pastors for a lot of reasons just don't do that but it speaks to the humility of your pastor and it also speaks to the fact that he wants the word of God to be front and center and I appreciate that so much so that's why uh, I get to be a part of your series in Mark chapter uh, or Mark's gospel that you're going through and today we are in Mark chapter 9. If you would like the heft of a Bible it's on page 845 in the Pew Bible in front of you. So Mark chapter 9 beginning in verse 30. They went on from there that is Jesus and the disciples went on from there and passed through Galilee and he did not anyone and he did not want anyone to know for he was teaching his disciples saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he's killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying, and were afraid to ask him. Verse 33, And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way... They had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. 
And he took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. And John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him. For no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me, for the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. So my understanding of the Gospel of Mark is that it's broken into two main sections. So if, if you have heard differently in this series, this is not divinely inspired. This is just Wootenology, okay? This is just my breakdown of the book of Mark, broken into two main sections. And it, it comes to an apex, it comes to a climax in chapter 8, when Jesus says, who do you say that I am? And we have the confession of Peter, you are the Christ. You are, uh, another word for Christ is Messiah. You are the Messiah. And so everything in Mark's gospel that was leading up to that point is to point to the fact that Jesus is indeed the Messiah, the Christ, the chosen one, the one sent from God, the rescuer. Everything from chapter 1, verse 1, leading up to that moment in Mark chapter 8, when Peter confesses, you are the Christ, was to present Jesus as the Messiah. And everything in Mark's gospel that flows from that moment is now to show us, okay, because he is the Christ, because he is the Messiah, what is our responsibility as his followers? So the rest of the book is really about discipleship. What does it mean to be a follower of this one who is the Christ? And so this section that we're in, chapter 9, is part of a a subset of chapter 8, 9, and 10. It begins in chapter 8 when a uh, a man who was blind was healed. And it ends in chapter 10 when a man named Bartimaeus, uh, who was blind, is healed. So it goes from blind man to blind man in this subset, uh, this subsection of Mark's gospel uh, that we're in. And so because of that, because this particular section begins and ends with a man being blind, receiving his sight from the Lord Jesus, I've entitled this section of scripture and and really this, this sermon today, Seeing Jesus. Seeing Jesus. So uh, not only do we see the physical sight being given to these two blind men at, blind men at the beginning and end of this uh, pericope, but we also see um, spiritual sight, spiritual insight being given from the Lord Jesus Christ. Three times he explains to them during this section what is about to happen to him when he and the boys head down to Jerusalem. So, you, if you've been here the last few weeks, you kind of know the background for this passage. Uh, Jesus went up on the Mount of Transfiguration, and there, uh, as it were, the curtain was pulled back just a bit, and we uh, were able to get a glimpse of glory. Uh, I think your pastor called it the majesty on the mountaintop. And uh, so we, uh, Jesus with Peter and James and John were there on the Mount of Transfiguration. And then they come down, they gather with the other disciples, they come down, and there's some arguing going on, and there was 
uh, an attempted miracle that the disciples down at the foot of the mountain just couldn't pull off while Jesus and Peter and James and John were up on the mountain. There was this boy that had a demon spirit, an unclean spirit, and the other disciples tried to cast this demon out, and they just weren't able to. And so Jesus comes and casts the unclean spirit out of, out of this boy. And then we come here to the passage we just read, beginning in verse 30. They went on from there. So you see they were up on the mountain. They came down to the mountain. They had that miracle. And now they're heading to Jerusalem. They're going to make a stop in Capernaum. But the main journey right now is to head to Jerusalem. And this is it. This, there, he's going to the cross. He's heading to Jerusalem, and there is, uh, he'll be crucified. And so this journey to the cross is going to uh, consume the rest of uh, the gospel of Mark. So they go on from there. They pass through Galilee, and he didn't want anybody to know. In other words, he's taking the back roads. He said, I've got I've to take advantage of these last few days that I've got with the disciples. I'm going to pour into them. I'm going to teach them. I'm going to disciple them, if you will. And, and so uh, he, he's not speaking to the crowds now. This time is meant for discipleship. And so uh, it's a significant time for them. They're going to stop in Capernaum, at, probably at the home of Peter and Andrew, uh, before they head to Jerusalem. This home was kind of their base of operations in Galilee. Uh, they would go out to the surrounding villages and synagogues. They would come back to Capernaum. Uh, most likely in this home of Peter and Andrew, and uh, kind of regroup and recharge, and then they would go out and do that again. And, and that was kind of the itinerant ministry of Christ that we saw early in the Gospel of Mark. Now they're coming one last time to regroup, recharge, before they head to Jerusalem where he will be crucified. And three times in this section, we, G we see Jesus beginning to say, fellas, this is what's going to happen when we go to Jerusalem, this is what's going to happen. In chapter 8, verse 31, he said, I'm going to suffer many things, and uh, I'm going to be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes. I am going to be killed, and after that, I'm going to, be, I'm going to rise again after three days. And they're thinking, what? No, 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 no. He's got to be, he's got to be using some kind of poetic language he's got to be using some kind of metaphor here because maybe he's talking about his comeback or something but the, the, literally he can't be talking about he can't be speaking about what literally is going to happen because this is ridiculous he's not going to go they're not going to reject him this is our moment this is our day this is what we've been following him for for over three years now but then we come to verse 30 here in our passage chapter 9 and, uh, or excuse me, verse uh, 31, he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. Some of your Bibles say betrayed into the hands of men. That speaks not so much of Judas as it does God the Father handing him over uh, to be crucified, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise again. And again, we're going to see it in the next chapter, in chapter 10, verses 32 through 34. He's going to tell them, we're going to Jerusalem. I'm going to be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. They're going to hand me over to the Gentiles. I'm going to be condemned to death. They're going to mock me. They're going to spit on me. They're going to beat me. They're going to kill me. And after three days, I'm going to rise again. And they were like, what in the world is he talking about? This doesn't make any sense at all. And, and uh, because what he tells them is the exact opposite of what they were expecting. 
What they were expecting was not that he was going to be delivered into the hands of men, but he's going to Jerusalem, and he's going to set things straight. He's going in as a conqueror. We're doing away with Rome. Uh, we, we are going to set things right. And yet, this is the message that he's telling them in these backwoods roads as they're heading to Capernaum and then on to, on to Jerusalem. He says, the Son of Man is going to be delivered. Son of Man is a, a phrase that he's used for himself already six times in Mark's gospel. And they understood the Son of Man, that phrase, the Son of Man, to have something to do with the messianic promise of Daniel chapter 7. Uh, that Jesus was claiming to be the Messiah, and so as such, they kind of had fixed in their mind what was, what was going to happen here. So what's going to happen is that um, Jesus is going to come in either with some kind of military or some kind of political coup, take over the Romans, put the Jews back in charge, and uh, have some kind of victory here where everybody's going to think he's great, everybody's going to think the disciples are great, they're going to be in charge now, and uh, uh, it's just, it was just the opposite of what Jesus was trying to tell them. They thought that an earthly kingdom with an earthly leader winning an earthly victory using earthly tactics was what was about to happen in the next week or so when they showed up to Jerusalem. But he says, no, 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 guys, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to be delivered over, they're going to kill me, and three days later, I'm going to rise again. And look at what it says in verse 32. They did not understand the saying, and they were afraid to ask him. Isn't that interesting? Why do you think, why do you think they were afraid to ask him? Because I don't think they wanted to hear the answer. If this wasn't a, a metaphor, if this wasn't poetic language... If he was speaking literally, this is not what they wanted to hear. And so they were afraid to ask him. This was the opposite of what they were expecting. So I don't, I don't know about you, but there are times when God doesn't do what I think he should do. Or he doesn't do it when I think he should do it. Sometimes God doesn't act like I think he ought to act. Have you ever heard somebody say, well, the God I worship would never da-da-da-da-da-da? Or, I could never worship a God who did this. Why do we say that? Why do we think sometimes God's not acting the way he should or acting the way we want or acting when we want? I think it's because many times we have created a God in our own image. <laughs> Now, we're made in the image of God, but many times we try to make God into our own image. We build this box of what God should be like, what God should do, when he should do it, and we try to put God into that box. Can I tell you something this morning? Whatever it is you think about God, he's bigger than that, okay? He's bigger than that. Whatever you think God is, whatever you think God should do, whenever you think he should do it, God's bigger than what we think he is. <laughs> Our finite minds cannot conceive of the immensity of who God is. And God doesn't always do things on my timetable. And God doesn't always check the boxes that I think he ought to check. God is sovereign. God will do what he wants to do. And God 
does all things well. So take whatever box you've got God in and just explode that box because God is bigger than you think. Well, and so he is trying to explode their box. <laughs> He's trying to say, listen, guys, you got it all wrong. We're not, we're not going in to take over. We're going in to be killed. I'm heading to the cross. He began telling them this in chapter 8, verse 31. He tells them this in chapter 9, verse 30. He tells them again in chapter 10, and they're just not getting it. Well, then we keep reading, and we see in verse 33 that they come to Capernaum, and when he was in the house. Now, I'm assuming this is the same house we were in when I was here in July, and we were in chapter 2 of Mark's gospel. And these four guys brought their paralyzed friend to Jesus to this house. I believe it was the home of Peter and Andrew and their families. Peter's mother-in-law lived there. Peter's wife lived there. Andrew, and if he had family, lived there. They were all in this house. Um, and uh, I believe we're, we're back in that same house that we were in uh, before. And so I hope they've gotten the roof fixed by now because that was a problem back in chapter 2. But they're back in this, in this same room, this house that was kind of the respite place, the place where Jesus could come in a very busy ministry and get some rest and recharge, regroup, and... Um, and get and, and get refreshed. So they come here. This great room where in chapter 2, when they came to hear Jesus, it was packed. There was standing room only. They were out the door. So many people had come to hear him teach. So they've got this great room. I can just imagine them all coming in from this long walk. They've come from the Mount of Transfiguration, from that miracle that, that Mark described of that unclean boy being, uh, unclean spirit being delivered from that boy. They come into the house. They're probably getting some uh, water, getting some refreshment. They're kind of mingling around. Everybody's saying hi to the families, uh, Peter's family and Andrew's family. And uh, Jesus comes up to a few of them and he says, Hey guys, let me ask you something. On our way here today, <laughs> I couldn't help but overhear that you guys kind of seem to be fussing about something. What was it you were fussing about? Some of your Bibles say arguing. Some of your Bibles say disputing. Uh, the ESV says discussing. I think that's a very polite way to say what was actually happening with these disciples. But uh, he says, what are you guys talking about? And they don't answer him. And a couple others over here hear what he was, they were talking about, and they don't say anything. All of a sudden, everybody's conversations kind of go dead quiet. The room gets still. Because what they were talking about was who's going to be the greatest. But they didn't want to tell him that. But he knew that, not just because he overheard it, but because he knew the hearts and thoughts of men, because he's the Messiah, right? So everything gets quiet, and then the Bible says Jesus sits down, and you're thinking, uh-oh, this can't be good, right? So he knows what we were talking about, and now we're about to get called out on it. And he calls the twelve in, so they come in this great room, so Jesus is seated, the disciples are all there, and... Um, he says, what were you guys disputing about on the road? And the Bible says, they all kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. Busted. They're busted. Not just a, just a, a little while ago, they were on the Mount of Transfiguration. Now, 
Peter and, Andrew, or Peter and James and John were with him up on the mountaintop, right? And so he told them at the end of that, don't tell anybody about this. Don't speak about what you've seen here, okay? So imagine they come down to the other disciples, and they're like, hey, what'd you guys do? What happened up there? And I can just imagine Peter and James and John saying, well, it was amazing, but we can't really talk about it. You don't really have security clearance. You know, we've been asked not to mention it, but let me just say it was incredible. Now, if Jesus ever gives us permission to let the rest of you know what we know and, and hear what we saw, we'll tell you. But for now, we just know that it, it was amazing. And the other guys have to be thinking, who do you think you are? Well, it was, it was obvious that these three were in the inner circle. Many times Jesus would pull these three apart from the rest of the twelve and invest in them and disciple them. But um, it just seems that all this bickering began, you know. And uh, we're the greatest. We were on the Mount of Transfiguration. We're in the inner circle. You guys, you know, you guys are kind of the lesser disciples. We're first class. Your coach. Deal with it. And I'm sure Matthew is sitting there thinking, you guys are a bunch of tradesmen. I have a desk job. I've got a legitimate desk job, you know. And if he brought that up, then I'm sure somebody said, legitimate? You were a tax collector. It's not, if anything is illegitimate, it's the fact that you were a tax collector for, for Rome. And so they're bickering back and forth. I can almost imagine Judas kind of jingling the money bag and say, boys, remember the golden rule. He who's got the gold rules, okay? So we want to talk about who the greatest is. Look who's been entrusted with the funds for this operation. I could hear others saying, you guys are just a bunch of blowhards because actions speak louder than words. Look at Andrew. Every time you see Andrew, he's bringing somebody to Jesus. He understands our mission better than any of us. If anybody ought to be in charge, it ought to be Andrew. And Peter comes full circle and says, don't be ridiculous. My little brother in charge of all this? I don't think so. In fact, I was the first disciple of all of us that Jesus called. So that should speak volumes to you about who should be in charge, who is going to be the greatest. They, they thought all of this was out of the earshot of Jesus. It didn't matter if it was or not because he, he knew what they were thinking and discussing. He knew what was in their hearts, and now he wants to address it. Because they sounded like a bunch of politicians in Herod's court. Or they sounded a lot like the Pharisees in the temple and in the synagogues. Jesus called them out in Matthew chapter 23. He said, you know what, you, you, you Pharisees, you get somebody else to carry all your stuff so that you can strut and walk and don't have to have things in your hands and, and you've, got, you've got gophers behind you that, that bring all your stuff along. And you wear these extra-large phylacteries, which are these boxes with Bible verses in them. And you wear these tassels, but you don't just wear tassels. You wear extra-large tassels. So that when you're walking through the marketplace, you love for heads to turn. You love for people to elbow each other and say, there's a Pharisee. Look, look at that guy. You love that. And he says, uh, you, you uh, make sure that when there's a banquet, you're always seated at the head table. You make sure that whenever you're, there's a worship service, that you're on the front row. Uh, he called these Pharisees out, and the things he called them out on are the very things his disciples are wrestling and disputing about now. Who's going to be number one? Who's in charge around here? Verse 34 is very awkward. 
It's silent. Nobody answers him when he says, what were you guys talking about out there on the road? I can imagine nobody's making eye contact with Jesus. They're looking at their, their shoes or sandals or bare feet or whatever. They're, maybe they're cutting eyes at each other. You know, who's going to speak up? I'm not saying anything. Are you gonna, I'm not going to say anything. I think this would have been a perfect moment for some of these lesser disciples, some of the guys that weren't as likely to be the greatest among them, to maybe throw some of these other guys under the bus, but nobody speaks. Nobody says anything. And then Jesus says in verse 35, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. Again, the exact opposite of what they thought. He said, I'm going to Jerusalem to die. The exact opposite of what they thought. And now he says, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. The exact opposite of what they thought. They had completely opposite ideas about greatness. Because the world thinks, and these guys thought, that to be great means that you're on top and everybody else is beneath you. And Jesus says, no, to be great, you're beneath and everyone else is above you. It's not how many serve you, it's how many you serve. Greatness is being the servant of all. Servant leadership, if you will. And this, this idea is completely the opposite of how our world operates. And Jesus turns their system upside down. He gives them this powerful lesson on humility. Humility is not thinking lowly of yourself. Humility is just not thinking of yourself. Humility is being so engaged in serving the needs of others that you don't have time to think about yourself. You don't think, have time to think about rank or prestige or status or title or, or whatever it might be. Uh, humility is seeking to serve others. Humility is the way of the cross. We need to hear this message from Jesus today. If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. We need to hear it just like they heard it in this house in Capernaum. Sometimes I have the, um, maybe it's called opportunity, I don't know, the occasion, I guess, to go to ministerial meetings, sometimes denominational meetings. And it's so interesting because in most of our denominations today, there's almost this this celebrity culture where the guys in the bigger churches or the guys who've written more books or the guys who are on the conference circuit, uh, they're kind of the power brokers in the denomination. And then you've got the up-and-comers that are trying to climb the denominational ladder. It's so funny for me to go to these things and, and watch the interactions because I'll see two guys come up and they start talking to each other, and the whole time they're talking to each other, they're not even talking to each other. They're looking around for somebody more important, more significant that they can go talk to because they want to be seen with those that are the up-and-comers or those that are already the power brokers. And uh, we've, we've got this idea of rank and status and prestige and, and all of that. And Jesus comes along and blows that apart in verse 35. If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. This is so countercultural. This is totally the opposite of what the world tells us today. And it's also counterintuitive. It doesn't really seem to make sense. But Jesus is turning things upside down 
to say we have to have a servant's heart. Uh, if a business owner uh, is going to run his business this way, it means that he'll want to serve his employees, want to serve his customers. It doesn't mean he abdicates his position of authority, but it does mean that he has a servant's heart. Do you have a servant's heart? And then he found a way to illustrate this. This is so great. Remember, they're in this great room. They're in Peter's home. Family's there. Disciples are there. And Jesus calls this boy over. We don't know how old he is. We don't know whose boy he is, although it's very likely that this could be Peter's son or possibly Andrew's son. And he takes him up in his arm. The way the Greek writes it, it takes him up in the crook of his arm. I guess he kind of picked him up or maybe let him sit on his lap. Uh, and so this child is, is sitting there, and Jesus is not saying that children are the example of humility and servanthood. Anybody got kids? Can you attest to that? Children are not the example of humility and servanthood. That's not his point here. But what he's saying is how you treat little ones like this indicates humility. Because children were of very low stature in that culture, very different than our culture today. Children were disregarded in that culture. There were no children's rights advocates. Families were not uh, child-centered as they are today. Family schedules are not, were not driven then by what the kids had going on. We got music practice. We got dance recital. We got ball practice. You know, we're running our family based on what the kids have going. There was no Disney World. There was no Pixar. It was not a child-centered culture. Children, in fact, had a very high mortality rate in that day. And it kept, that, that reality kept parents many times from getting too connected too fast emotionally to their children. In fact, if a family had more mouths to feed than they had money, sometimes they would abandon these child. Infanticide was very common in that day. In fact, it was the early church that kind of turned the tide on accepting infanticide, accepting child abandonment, and adoption became a big part of the testimony of the early church. But Jesus is saying, if you, if you receive one child as I would receive this child, then whatever you do for that child is considered as though you did it for me. If you receive this child in my name, you receive me, and you receive the one who sent me. If you honor this child, this one that is considered of no regard, of no importance, there's no significance, there's no, nothing that's going to earn you accolades or prestige or status or rank by being kind and tender to this little child. But if you'll do that, you'll set off a chain reaction that will end at the very throne of God. And so... Our service to the Lord, a lot of times, maybe I should speak for me, my service, a lot of times, to the Lord is given with the expectation that I'm going to get something in return. Have you ever done that? Ever engaged in ministry and thought, I'm going to do this because the pastor is going to call me out and, and, and give me some props from the pulpit, or I'm going to get my name in the bulletin, or I'm going to get some recognition here. Or I'm going to get a promotion. Or I'm going to get some kind of advantage. But greatness in the kingdom is so different than greatness in the world. In fact, in, in Aramaic, which is what Jesus spoke, that's the language Jesus spoke, the word for child in Aramaic is the same word for servant. So he chose this illustration very, very carefully as he's presenting to them. Listen, let me give you an illustration of what I'm talking about when I say that to be the greatest, you need to be the servant of all. Look at this little boy. 
and treat him in a way that he can't give you anything in return. There's no way he can promote you. There's no way he can give you any accolades. You're not going to get your name in the headlines. You're not going to be in the spotlight because nobody knows who this little fella is. And when you receive him, you're receiving me. When you receive me, you receive the one who sent me. So Jesus is telling us we need to have a servant's heart. Okay, you got it? You got it? They didn't. They didn't get it. Because when you turn the page and get to chapter 10, you know what they're doing? James and John are going up to Jesus, and they're saying, Hey, Jesus, listen, we've been thinking. We've got an idea. When we get in the kingdom, here's, what, here's the way we'd like for it to be set up. We'd, we'd like for you to put one of us on your right hand and one of us on your left hand. Would that be cool? In fact, if Matthew's account of this in chapter 20 of Matthew's gospel is the same, it's even worse than that. It's even more pathetic than that. They sent their mama to ask that. Okay? Their mama comes to Jesus and says, listen, I, I need to ask you something. And he says, okay, what, what do you want me to do for you? Well, it's my boys, you know. Could, could we kind of set things up this way so that when we get in the kingdom, you know, John and James, one could be here, one could be here. That would be just, that would be really great if we could work it out that way. And they, they didn't get it. And then you keep reading in the gospel and we get to the upper room. Remember the upper room the night before Jesus is to be uh, arrested or that night he'll be arrested. The next day he'll be crucified. And they get to the upper room, and they walk in, and they're tired, and they're dirty, and typically what would happen is uh, the host or servant or somebody would wash their dirty feet because they just had open sandals and their feet were dirty, and nobody does that. Nobody does it for each other. Nobody does it for Jesus. Of all people, they should at least do it for him, right? Nobody does it at all. So what does he do? He takes a a towel, he takes his robe off, and he takes a towel and girds himself, and he goes with a bowl of water to each of the disciples, and he washes their feet. And when he's done, he said, Boys, you ought to be doing this to each other. You know why they didn't do it to each other? Because one didn't want to kneel in front of the other. If they knelt in front of the other, then the one having his feet washed is now greater than the one washing the feet. And this whole competition is about who's going to be the greatest. They didn't get it. They didn't get it here in chapter 9. They didn't get it in chapter 10. They didn't get it in the upper room. Jesus calls us to pursue servant leadership and to forsake selfish ambition. Well, let's look at the last section of this passage in verse 38. After Jesus gives this teaching, John kind of tries, tries to break the tension. Look at what he says in verse 38. Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he's not following us. And he's, I mean, you read that, you got to imagine he's expecting a pat on the back, right? He's expecting, attaboy, John, way to go. Shut those fellas down. We can't let that be going on around here. That's not what Jesus said. Look at what he said. Jesus said in verse 39, do not stop him. What? The exact opposite of what they thought he was going to say. No one who does a mighty work, or some of your Bibles say a miracle in my name, will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me, for the one who's not against us is for us. Truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. And so this, 
there was this believer, he was exercising demons, and the, and the disciples said, don't do that, don't do that, don't do that. You're, you're, not, you're not one of the twelve. <laughs> you can't do that, you can't be doing that. Which is crazy, because weren't they just 20 verses earlier trying to cast out a demon, and they couldn't do it themselves, right? And now they're trying to stop somebody who is doing it, because even though he's doing it in Jesus' name, he's not one of them. He's not one of the posse. And so they try to stop him. And it, it reminds me of in the Old Testament when uh, Moses set up the 72 elders and Joshua comes to him and says, Moses, listen, some of these guys are prophesying and people are, are listening to them. You want everybody to be listening to you. You don't want them to listen to them. And you know what Moses said in, in Numbers 11? He said, are you jealous on my account? If only all the Lord's people were prophets and the Lord would place his spirit on them. Don't shut them down. They're doing the Lord's work. Or I think about in John chapter 3 when the disciples of John the Baptist came to him and said, John, listen, this is not, our numbers are down. People are leaving us and they're going after Jesus. And you need to do something to get the crowds back on our side. You know what John said? In John chapter 3, he said, No one can receive a single thing unless it's given to him from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I'm not the Messiah. I've been sent ahead of him. He who has the bride is the groom, but the groom's friend who stands by and listens for him rejoices greatly at the groom's voice. So this joy of mine is complete. He must increase. I must decrease. And so, friends, I would say that what Jesus is saying in verses 39 and 40 is that we need to be tolerant of our brothers and free of jealousy and supportive and not have a spirit of envy or competition just because they're not part of our denomination or just because they don't cross every theological T the way we do or dot every theological I the way we think should be done. I've been in churches where I've seen church staffs in turf wars over budget dollars or over pulpit announcements. Are we going to focus on the youth today? Are we going to focus on the senior adults? Are we going to, what, who's going to get the attention of the pulpit announcements today? Or who's going to get the best calendar dates for their events? Or who's going to get the best office in the church office complex? And there's this competition, even among the church staff, and it's, it's sickening. We need to be willing to abandon selfish ambition and secret agendas and bow our knees and bow our hearts to the mission of Christ, to the way of the cross. We must follow him in humility, seeking to make the name of Jesus great and not our name great. To be the greatest, we must be the servant of all. We must treat people as though they're just... an insignificant child that can't do anything for us in return we do that it's as though we're doing it as unto the lord and there are other brothers in the kingdom that are doing gospel work now i realize not everybody who puts church on their sign is a biblical church i understand that so the kingdom of god is smaller than we might think it is but the kingdom of god is also larger than we might think it is and there are folks that may not wear our denominational name or be in our circle that are still gospel folks. 
for 10 years before I came to RBC, I was involved in adoption and orphan care. And part of my work in adoption and orphan care was to connect with churches and to engage them in adoption and orphan care. And there were a lot of churches that maybe worshiped differently than I would have preferred, or maybe even had some theological nuances that didn't set right with me. But they understood the exclusivity of the gospel. They understood the inspiration of the scripture. They understood the Trinity. They understood the, the majors of the faith. And though we didn't see eye to eye on every single nuance of doctrine, these were brothers. And this was kingdom work. And I embraced that. And I began to see that the, the kingdom is bigger than maybe what, what I thought. I think about 19th century London, and it's said that in 19th century London, you could go and hear Joseph Parker preach. And it's said that when people left the church after hearing Joseph Parker preach, they would say, what a tremendous preacher. But then you could go across town to Metropolitan Tabernacle, and you could hear Charles Spurgeon preach. And people would leave after hearing Spurgeon preach, and they would say, what a remarkable Savior. We've got to stop trying to build our kingdom and trying to be the greatest and trying to push everybody down and poison the well so that we're the only ones with the truth. Because there's a wonderful Savior. There's a kingdom, but it's not my kingdom, and it's not your kingdom. It belongs to King Jesus. And with servant, servant hearts, not for prestige, rank, or privilege, we have the honor of serving the king. And may we do that faithfully. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that you would forgive us for arrogance and selfish ambition, trying to make a name for ourselves. Help us instead to make much of you, to be humble servant leaders in whatever you've called us to do. Help us, Lord, to embrace other brothers who are involved in kingdom work. And may your name be made much of, we pray. Amen.